for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. All right, Psalm 139, the first 14 verses. Jenny, lead us. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. So word of God for the people of God. And everyone said, thanks be to God. You can be seated. Thanks, Jenny. You know, Mike, was, you're supposed to tell your story in February. And something happened. I can't remember. And we pushed it to today. And you'd almost think we did it on purpose. Uh, it's funny how God aligns things. Uh, I, I remember when I was a kid, I was, I don't know, five or six years old, and uh, I lived in southwest Tulsa, and 91st, about as far west as it can go. But we, uh, we worshiped at Woodlake Assembly of God, a church that I love so much. The building for Woodlake used to be at 31st between Sheridan and Memorial. So uh, we would get on Highway 75 going north, and we'd take that big ramp getting onto I-44. And, and when I was a kid... Um, uh, you know, every, things were much more relaxed in many ways. Um, I don't remember my, my parents or many, even my friends' parents being, like, crazy about seatbelts. Um, you should buckle up, by the way, if no one's told you that. Uh, but I was sitting behind my mom in the, our, our uh, blue Dodge Caravan with wood paneling. Some of your moms or aunts had those. They were classic sliding doors and... Uh, I was sitting behind my mom, and we got in a wreck, and I, I remember falling down, you know, I kind of like ran into mom's seat, luckily I wasn't hurt very bad, and it was a gold car that like, like soared in front of us or something like that, and, uh, and there was, a, you know, a, a decent wreck, bad enough, we had to go to court, and my mom was thinking things through, and she's like, I'm going to pull the heartstrings of this judge, and so she brought along as a very credible witness, five, six-year-old Jonathan Franklin Odom, and I wore suspenders, and I had a little plastic briefcase with G.I. Joe's in it. <laughs> I still carry that with me everywhere just in case I get bored. And, uh, and I don't think they ever called me as a witness, but uh, my mom coached me. She said, if they do call you as a witness, you're going to go up on the stand. They're going to put your hand on the Bible, and then it's say, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And I was supposed to say, I will, or I do. It's just being honest. You know, truthful speech, honest, plain speech, is the currency of all of our relationships. Interpersonally, you know, you know, with our spouses, with our significant others, with 
our families. It's, it's the currency of trust in our relationship with politicians, why confidence is really low. We don't know if we can trust the things that people say. Uh, we, we rely on plain, honest speech as employees and as employers. Um, and, and things go amiss when we don't tell the truth, when we don't speak plainly. Um, I, generally speaking, I, like I'm a, I'm a truth-telling person, but I do have this temperament, perhaps like many of you, where I don't like to ruffle feathers. I like to preserve harmony, even at times if it's an artificial harmony. Does anybody feel that impulse? <laughs> I, you know, as a kid, I remember lying just because I didn't want to upset people. And it annoys me to no end, but I I find that people know uh, when I'm not telling the whole truth. When I tell 80% of my explanations for a decision or 90% of things, I wish it were not true, but people can smell it on me. There's like, there is more to the story. He is being weird. I don't know what it is. And it's withholding the last 10% or the last 20% of truth. When I give those partial explanations, it doesn't work out very well. In all of our relationships with, with the government, with each other, with, with police officers, life generally works best when we're honest. It's difficult to be honest, but it is dangerous when we are not honest. And we know this in our interpersonal relationships. We know, uh, you know, tell your parents the truth. It works best. You know, it's going to be much harder if you don't. Tell your spouse the truth. It's going to be way harder if you don't. So we generally know it's best to be honest and we try to practice these things, but there's one relationship where we often struggle the most in being completely transparent and honest, and it's in our relationship with God. I chuckle, my parents were here at the last service, I chuckle having those memories as a child where um, we we were all sitting at the dinner table and the landline would ring. Many of our children will not know what a landline is. Isn't that funny? But I remember, you know, my mom would be getting on to one of us, probably me, about being a picky eater. And she's like, John, eat your broccoli. And the phone rings. And she's like, Odom Residence, Jane speaking. Did your mom or your dad ever do that? You saw that hard shift from them being like annoyed and grouchy at you to like, oh, everything's wonderful and everything, nothing has ever been bad before. And we do a similar thing in conversations with the Lord where our inner thought life or the things that we're feeling and thinking about reflect a much more panicked state. We're mad. We're frustrated. We're bored. We're impatient. We have all of these things stirring. But if we were in a group setting and someone called on us, we'd hard shift to, well, Lord, we just thank you for this day and blah, blah, blah. And there's just this, 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 this clear line between how we're really doing in this veneer of Christian happiness. Christians are happy all the time. We're not. Uh, We we struggle to be honest in our relationship with God. Uh, Why is it difficult to be honest in our relationship with God? Well, I think probably three or four reasons. Uh, One of those is we're afraid of saying something stupid to God. I don't know if you have this experience, but you're afraid of like, like he knows everything, so if I say something dumb, he's obviously going to realize it. Or maybe you have a narrative in your thinking about God. Perhaps this came from your relationship with the church or your, your parents growing up, where when you go to a worship service, you dress nice, you smile big, and you act like everything is great. And so when you pray, you feel this pressure to do a similar kind of thing. Just put on your Sunday best. Or if you think if you say the wrong thing or the stupid thing, you're going to get in trouble or you're afraid that God is going to be like, well, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed that you would say that. 
And as a result of that, fearing saying something stupid, we tend to keep things superficial. We keep things vague and generic and light and oddly religious sounding. And, uh, you know, it's like our prayers are put together in a theological lab, so we've got everything, the ingredients together just perfectly. We struggle in being honest with God because we're afraid of saying something stupid. Now, some of you will relate to this second point more than others. But another reason that many of us struggle to be honest in our relationship with God is we don't want to speak negativity into reality. We don't want to speak negativity into reality. Tulsa is an epicenter for this kind of thinking. We're afraid that if we say something bad, something bad is going to happen to us. It's kind of like this kind of verbal karma we think is true. If we only say positive things, only positive things will happen to us. If we, only, if we say negative things or if people speak negative words over us, then those bad things are going to come to be reality. And so in circles like this, they might say things like, well, hey, don't speak that over me. Do you remember uh, Talladega Nights? Don't, 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 don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> That's the idea. Don't speak that over me. Or, or they'll say positively like, well, I just speak this into this situation. It's like if I just, I'm willing the good to happen by force of my words. It's a kind of sense of verbal karma. Now, there are reasons that I like being around people who, do, who think like this. Because oftentimes when they face difficulty, they're ready to meet it with faith. They've got confidence that God's going to do something, and we need more of that. They bring strength to the table in these kind of conversations. But there can be downsides to this fear of verbal karma, that if we, we, we have to say positive things, we can't say negative things. There are downsides to that because even if you have doubt, well, no one is safe to actually say it. Instead, you speak faith. You in, ignore that internal evidence. It's very emotionally unhealthy in some ways. I remember uh, there was a season where I came out of worshiping with this faith community that had this verbal karma instinct, and I wrote a series of blog posts as a young guy in my 20s about the good and the bad of this church experience, and uh, I remember an elder in that church uh, reached out to me, and he said, John, I am so sorry that you didn't feel the safety to say these things when you were worshiping in our church. And actually, to tell you the truth, I have been feeling many of these things for decades, like, wow, I would never have guessed that. And then the next thing he said was, but would you please take down the blogs because I don't want anyone in our church to actually see that. So, well, you said, I'm sorry you weren't safe to say it then, but he reinforced the message, you're still not safe to say it with us now. It's like, oh, man, you were missing out. There's, there's freedom there that you could have, but there's this fear of verbal karma, of speaking negativity into reality, and you think, oh, there are emotional health costs to this. It's costly to never tell the full truth about yourself, to, to yourself, to other people, to God. It, you're missing out on the opportunity for intimacy, because if you can't name these negative realities to yourself or to God, you certainly can't do it to friends. You're, you're keeping uh, the gift of community at arm's length. Sometimes in situations like this, counseling or asking for help, going to therapy, can be very stigmatized because there's this fear of verbal karma. You're speaking negative things into reality, and so people quietly suffer when there's the opportunity for a way forward into greater freedom. Why do we struggle to be honest with God? Sometimes we're afraid of saying something stupid. 
sometimes we don't want to speak negativity into reality. I think a third reason, I actually didn't write this down, but it occurs to me just now, I think a third reason some of us struggle to be honest, honest with God is that we are overwhelmed with shame. Because the second we think about talking to the Lord, we think about those, those poor choices we've made in our sins are just staring at us in the face, and it is easier to just try to keep our distance, even though it's the one who could make us well. It's difficult to be honest, because if I'm honest, I'm not in a good spot with you, Lord. And I think a fourth reason many of us struggle to be honest with God is that we're just not honest with ourselves. Mike said uh, some people uh, may be dispositionally unable to be honest. God, I hope that's not us. But how, do you, how can you not be honest with yourself? Well, you don't practice self-reflection. You don't ask questions. You don't explore. And, and that's a really sad way to live. And so, not wanting to say something stupid or not wanting to speak negativity into reality or not being honest with ourselves, many of us keep it superficial. We withhold honesty or worse, in our relationship with God, we just say nothing. Now, think about this interpersonally with someone who's really important to you. Which would you rather them do? Would you rather them, in relating to you, keep it really saccharine sweet, really artificially cheerful and warm, or would you rather them give you the cold shoulder? Well, you're like, I don't want either one of those. I want you. I want the, I want the real thing. I want you to like, bear your soul to me. I want to be your friend and your companion. You'd want them to figure out how to truthfully and, if possibly, tactfully tell you everything. An unfiltered self-disclosure, letting other people get an honest glimpse at your soul is a prerequisite for intimacy. But so many of us keep others and keep the Lord at arm's length because we don't know and we haven't been taught and no one has modeled for us how to be truly and deeply honest with ourselves and with others and with God. I asked on Instagram this week uh, if you were being really honest, if you give yourself permission to be really honest, what would you say to God? Put this out there. I had to coax people a little bit into actually responding, and as people got going, we started to hear some really interesting answers. Some of these answers I'll share. We heard two, three, four times versions of it. I asked if you were being really honest, what would you say to God? One person who, who clearly knew himself said, I struggle to want to want you. Oh, man, that's, that's good self-awareness. Now, some of you are like in a space, space where you're like, you want more of God. And some of you are like, oh, I want, I want to want more of God. And he's like, I struggle with even that. Like, I'm just like, I'm kind of good. I know that I should want you. I should feel like a sense of need or desperation. But I struggle to even want to want that. I thought, man, that's a self-aware guy. Another person said really simply, and you can imagine any number of situations that this might reflect. One person just said, fix it already. Mm. Another person said, please come soon. One person I thought really interestingly asked the question, what's a belief that I hold to firmly that I'm wrong about? Good question. One teenager said, help me. One really sweet and sincere person said if they were being really honest, they would just say to God, I love walking with you. Uh, numerous people asked a version of, why do innocent people suffer? 
the problem of evil that we've been asking forever. In light of the, the, this week and the last week's events, one person said, why is there still war? One person says, does prayer change anything? Haven't we all at one point or another asked a question like that? You pray, you petition, you do the whole ASK, ask, seek, knock kind of thing. You're like clinging to every Bible verse and it didn't happen. Like, come on. Numerous people asked a question that, was, that went along the lines of something like, why are so many Christians unloving? Uh, several people asked some version of, I know you hear, but why don't you answer? Uh, one person really earnestly just asked, what would you have me do? What do you want me to do? Uh, several people asked something like, why do I have to wait? And then hear all the pain and longing wrapped up in this one. Why didn't you heal him? Mm. Another person said, thank you for not giving up on me. And these went on and on and on. And as I began to listen and kind of collate all of these, these things that people said, they'd, they'd say if they were really honest to God, some themes emerged. And they just honest to God, there was gratitude. It's like, thank you. Like, you're good to me. There's gratitude. There's a lot of impatience. Like, okay, God, you promised this. The real world looks like this. What the heck? Like, impatience. Or I've asked you for this and nothing is happening. So why am I still waiting? There's a fair amount of anger represented by uh, the things that people said. Prayers weren't being answered. There were good people like, who were behaving systematically badly. There are bad people who seem to be rewarded for their behavior, and there's just rampant injustice in our world. M many people uh, represented the frustration around the distance of God. Uh, Mike shared about a moment where Jesus felt very close and very near, but there are also those dark nights of the soul, and sometimes they feel like they, it's like the wilderness, like they go in a long time where, is anyone up there taking my calls? God feels very, very distant. There's a lot of grief and big feelings that needed to be processed. And then there was a theme I could just call inquiries, where people were saying, you know, help me understand, where am I wrong? Uh, tell me what to do. And in thinking through all these responses, what we see is that if people were being really honest, which I assume to be a departure from most of our norms and our relationship with God, if people were being, when people were being really honest, we have a much fuller expression of the emotional range of the human experience. And the point is not just getting it off our chest in prayer. The point is truly knowing others and, and being known by others. Most of us don't actually express and live in that kind of wide emotional range. And so as it is, there are depths within us that go unplumbed unexplored and unexpressed. And so we remain to ourselves and to others unknown. But we're not unknown to God. Listen to David. He says, you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. My whole internal map you know by heart. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Verse 7, so where can I go from your spirit? 
Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness won't be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. These are famous verses. How many songs have been written about these verses? And in them, David is recognizing that he is fully seen and he is fully known by his Creator. Now, if you've only read or remember this part of the psalm, you think, this is sweet. This is precious. This is like if precious moments could be turned into a psalm, those little figurines, it would be this. But then David goes on, and you might notice with me that the psalm takes a rather sharp turn. He says in verse 19, If only, God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies but what do you really think, David? How do you really feel about these people? David's like, well, he knows me already, so I may as well just say everything. And what I'm really thinking is I hate their guts and I wish God would slit their throats. It's like, wow. And you hold this whole psalm together, the the beauty of you've searched me and you know me and cut their throats. And an insight emerges from David's comfort with the Lord. It's because God knows us completely, we can be completely honest with Him. Because God knows us completely, we can be completely honest with Him. David models for us a prayer life with the Lord where there's no holding back, there's no sugarcoating. In the majority of our relationships, we use some form of tact. We, we tiptoe, we, we self-filter, but not with God. Because he already knows this better than we know ourselves, we can quit pretending and simply be. And David feels the luxury and the ease in his life with God to be poetically beautiful and also ruthless toward his enemies in prayer. I, I, like I said, I am a person who generally tries to keep preserve harmony. Often that means that I am thinking more than I am saying interpersonally, which creates problems in my relationships, and I have been working on that for decades. And, uh, but every now and then, I really like being around people who've got no filter. Like, I love, there's, there's a friend in this room who's really great at just saying everything he thinks, and I love him because it gives me the permission to just say all the stuff that I think. And, and David feels all the permission in the world to say everything that he is thinking with the Lord. And God is like, I love this guy. Like, he doesn't mess around. He just gets down to it. And so they could know one another. Now, here's what's so cool to me about this. As David has says, you know, like kind of part A, you've searched me and you know me, poetry, beauty, slit their throats. And then he gets to verse 23 that kind of brings the whole thing together in a really interesting way. Having said everything that he was thinking and feeling, the good and the bad and the ugly, David prays, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
He says everything. You know, you, you can see right through him. He's transparent. And having been completely himself with the Lord, he makes this petition, where I'm wrong, you got to show me. I think it was in Psalm 19. He said, who can discern their own errors? And so David actively asks the Lord, show me where I'm a dummy. <laughs> and it leads me to another insight. Considering how David prayed, we need a way of being honest with God, like David, that puts us on the road to wholeness. We need a way of being completely ourselves, hiding nothing, and also in movement on a trajectory toward maturity and wholeness. David, as we've said, has unreservedly expressed how he feels. I wish you would slay them. I hate them. I abhor them. And then he also prays, search me and show me where I'm in the wrong. And that's the part of the prayer that you and I usually leave out. If we feel the comfort in our life with God to say the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us, God, that's the part that we often lack the presence of mind to come around to. So like, Lord, you want the unfiltered truth? This is what I think. So kill him. <laughs> but where I'm an idiot, that, that's where we often lack. So a question we might ask is, where can we find a guide to prayer that, on the one hand, helps us preserve true and complete candor and honesty with God, and two, puts us on a journey toward wholeness? And one of the principal resources that, that the, the church and the people of Israel uh, before us uh, leveraged for these purposes was the book of Psalms, the 150 Psalms right in the middle of our Bible. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who famously translated the message version of the Bible, um, sat down for an interview with Bono, you know, as one does, a very likely pairing there. And uh, they, were, they were sitting down and, and they were talking about the Psalms. They were attracted to one another because Bono discovered the message version of the Psalms and he'd been reading this guy forever. Eugene Peterson had no idea who Bono was. And there was, they tell a story where there's a time where um, Bono reached out to Eugene Peterson through his publicist at the time that he was translating Isaiah. And the publicist was like, like uh, but Eugene, it's Bono. And he goes, yeah, but it's Isaiah. <laughs> and these two guys get down together and they're, they're talking about the Psalms and commenting on the Psalms, especially those that are called the imprecatory Psalms, a great word there. Eugene Peterson said, we need a way to cuss without cussing. And some of the Psalms enable us to do this. And David Taylor, who's in C4SO, if you, kind of our tribe, if you know what that means, was orchestrating this interview, and in his book, Open and Unafraid, talking about the Psalms and this whole experience, he said, what the Psalms offer us is a powerful aid to unhide. So many of us are, are hidden toward one another, the things we really think, the things we really feel, and so we miss out on intimacy, but the Psalms offer us a powerful way and aid to unhide to stand honestly before God without fear, to face one another vulnerably without shame, and to encounter life in the world without any of the secrets that would demean or distort our humanity. Taylor says the Psalms, then, are for those who know that they spend much of their life hiding secrets. They're also for those who know that standing in the presence of God is the one place where such secrets cannot and must not be hidden. 
We become whole by praying our honest joys and our honest sorrows. We pray our honest praise of God and our honest anger at God. We also pray for honest speech in our words to God. And the Psalms show me how to be honest with God. As we read the New Testament, the Psalms are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. There are at least 196 direct citations to the Psalms in the New Testament. Uh, One of the times that Jesus confronts the Pharisees, he quotes Psalm 8. When he's predicting his betrayal, he quotes Psalm 41. When Jesus is on the cross and naming his pain to his Father, he quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You need to go read the rest of the psalm. The psalms are all throughout uh, the book of Acts. They are all throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul. As we get into the the early church period, the early church fathers uh, almost universally commended the psalms. Uh, Tertullian does it, Origen does it, Jerome does it, Augustine does it, Athanasius, and many others commend the church, worship with the psalms, pray the psalms. In the Middle Ages, Benedictine monks were encouraged to pray the entire Psalter, that all 150 psalms in, in the book, every single week. Martin Luther and John Calvin both famously prayed the Psalms and encouraged other people to do the same. The first book that was published in the American colonies was the Bay Psalm Book. It was a Psalter, and it included Isaac Watts' adaptation of Psalm 98, which we usually sing around Christmas time called Joy to the World. The last book written by the Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was arrested by the Nazis, as he was awaiting his execution in prison, he wrote a book on the Psalms. He said, I read Psalms every day, as I've done for years. I know and love them more than any other book. In 1969, when Americans first walked on the moon, you know, the, the moment where Neil Armstrong is one small step for man, that whole thing. Pretty good. Well, Buzz Aldrin gets out after Neil Armstrong, and what does he quote? Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? In the 1990s, a presidential advisor named David Gergen asked a pastor who was serving at a church near Harvard, it's like, hey, I want to read the Bible, where should I start? And the pastor said, my advice has always been to start with an accessible book, and I suggest you start with the Psalms. Now, people will say, oh, but the Psalms are so pretty and musical. Shouldn't I take something stronger? If you read the Psalms, read them all. Read them at a pretty intense clip. Don't spend all year doing it. Do it over the course of a couple of weeks, and you'll find in those 150 Psalms such an acute range of human experience, you'll think it was written by your therapist. Read the Psalms. Now, for this season of Lent, um, which, which began on Ash Wednesday, uh, for those of you who are new to kind of the church calendar, uh, the, the calendar itself reflects some of the different range, the range of human emotions. We've got uh, Epiphany and Christmas, which is a season of celebration, and we've also got Lent, which is a season of repentance. We're going to be reflecting on our need for redemption. We put ashes on our forehead to remember, like, we deserve death because of our sins, and apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ, like, that's, that's what we deserve, but it'll lead into the season of Eastertide where we're celebrating. There's highs and there's lows, there's, there's longing and there's repentance. It's all of these things 
together. And for the season of Lent, leading up to Holy Week, we're going to be transitioning our focus to looking at the Psalms. And the way the Psalms give us a guide to the kind of honesty in our life with God that can lead to wholeness. And so today we're introducing this theme of honesty, and Mike so beautifully teed it up with his story. Next week we're going to talk about sadness and grief and how the, the Psalms give voice to our pains. Uh, the, the following week we're going to talk about anger and rage. And, and you know, that's a, that's a reality within many of us. I've got a lot in there. How do we name that to God? Taylor talked about anger at God. That's a reality that many of us feel. The following week, we're going to deal with the distance of God. And then finally, we're going to look at how the, the Psalms give us expression to our deepest joys. And it's kind of this dark leading to a light, which fits the way that many people describe the season of Lent as the bright sadness. There's a darkness leading into greater and deeper light. There is a kind of honesty that's permissible in our life with God and a kind of honesty that can actually lead to wholeness. I remember when it clicked for me that, I, that God could bear my honesty. I wonder if it has clicked for you yet. I was 17 or 18 years old. I was going down the Creek Turnpike East about to go onto Highway 75. I, I, I don't know why I've mentioned so many highways. Um, 244 is great. You're 169. I was going down uh, the, the Creek Turnpike East, and I remember thinking about something a Bible teacher of mine had said, that God can handle our honesty. And I thought, so I began to look within, said, you know, I have some hurts in there that I have not adequately named to myself and some disappointments, and some anger in there. Okay, you can handle it. And I was just driving down the highway as a kid, expressing these things to the Lord and finding like deep comfort in feeling the safety to, to name those things. And it wasn't super long after that that I was, I was reading the Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, and I read something that was familiar to me, followed by something that was unfamiliar to me. The thing that was familiar was a verse that many of you perhaps know. The Word of God is, is a living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the hearts. Like, I knew all that. I remember that. There have been moments in my life, I hope that you've had these moments in your life, where in reading Scripture, you read something that just named a truth or an experience within you. And I hope that will happen for you as we go through the Psalms in the next month plus, that you, you hear in the, the prayers of David or the sons of Korah, uh, naming a grief or a rage that you feel or a feeling that you experience, and it's like, it's like they read my mail. There are times where the Scriptures do it, it's like it cuts us open. But then verse 13 of chapter 4 goes on to say, nothing in all creation is hidden. We're always trying to hide. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned. They're immediately hiding. We're always trying to hide. But he says, nothing in all creation is really and truly hidden from God. In his eyes, everything is already uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I remember Hagar, do you remember this in the book of Genesis when she was running away from her mistress and from Abram and God called her name and she said, surely you're the God who sees me. All of this conversation about being honest in our life with God stems from something very important about the nature and the character of God, that ours is the God who sees us. In theological terms, we might just say that God is, this God is personal. 
and that he is himself a person, triune certainly, but he's a person. And he's interpersonal in that he wants to know you and he wants you to know him. At the last service, uh, my son Sam was sitting over there. Sam's eight. Uh, I always bring a big kid with me on Sundays. And at the time, he was literally rolling around on the ground like this. He's eight. Like, dude, come on. But I just looked over at him and I thought, I just, I love that boy so much. I love these children so much. They drive me bonkers. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm not joking. I love them so much. And the limitations of my character are so routinely exposed by them. Uh, but I, I want to know these children. And I want my kids to, like, to feel known by their dad. Uh, and as they grow up, I, I want to I, I have a great relationship with them as teenagers. I want to love them into adulthood and then, you know, like, be friends with my children someday. Always be their dad. But it's like, because yeah, of course, like they're, they're half me. And similarly, your creator wants to know you. You've done dumb stuff. Me too. He wants to know you. One of my great pain points in my own life with God is that prayerlessness just far too often describes my relationship with Him. I think about Him, I listen to songs about Him, but I don't talk to Him. And maybe that's you too. And maybe there are like habits, you don't know how to do it. Maybe there are pain points like shame, you just need to express to get it out of the way. But, oh man, our Heavenly Father wants to know us and He wants to be known by us. You might say, well, like, well, you don't know what it's like to be me. Well, it's like, he does. The author of Hebrews says Jesus is, is a great high priest, like a person, personally, like a, a wonderful intermediary to the Father because he knows what it's like to be tempted in every way and yet to be without sin. He knows what it's like to be a person. He knows what it's like to have parents. He knows what it's like to go without a spouse. He knows what it's like to go without children. Some of you feel that longing. Can I relate to him? Yeah, he gets it. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. He knows what it's like to be disappointed by those who are close to him. He knows what it's like to be made fun of by his brothers. Everyone had brothers says, like, well, great, me too. He he gets what it's like, and he wants to know you. And so what I want to do is to offer you a couple of questions for reflection, just to prod you and and to prod and encourage me into greater honesty in our life with God. And then I want to give you a challenge or an encouragement. Three questions for you to consider. I want you to think about, this is going to help get your wheels turning in in self-reflection. In what ways have your family or experiences or church experience shaped your ability to be honest with God? In what ways have your, your family, your church, your life experience shaped your ability or inability to be honest with God? Think about that. Another one I want you to think through is, what are you afraid will happen if you are completely honest with God? Do you think you're going to boggle his mind with a doubt? Like, I hadn't thought about the dinosaur record. Damn, man, if he figured it out. What are you afraid is going to happen if you ask the question, if you say the thing that you really want to say? And the third thing I want to do is, like, uh, I'm going to say this in an elegant way, but like, churches for crying, 
there are things that, in, that make sense in the space of this time together that won't make sense in 30 minutes. In other words, like having sung together and, and thought about the scriptures, like your mind is just racing. And there are things that are just going on in your heart and you need to capture the moment now. And there may be some honest things that you need to say to the Lord before you leave this morning. Ways in which you need to ask for help. In 30 minutes from now, an hour from now, when you leave, like, like it's like it's going to be gone. And you need to create some space to express some things to the Lord this morning. I'd ask you, what honest thing do you need to say to God now? And then the encouragement I want to give you is, as you go out on the coffee tables, we've got these bookmarks, it's called daily offices, like daily Bible reading plans. And you may not, like, be on board for reading the whole thing. But maybe you just do the Psalms. It's been one a day, but maybe you do two. Maybe you do three a day and look for something that names a reality in you. And just see in what ways that the Psalms might give voice to some of your laments or some of your joys. And use it as a springboard to have an honest conversation with the Lord, but the kind of honest conversation that can move you toward wholeness. Let's pray together. Jesus, I, I think about my own life with you, and I, I know that for me, my own heart can be like a reasons not to pray generator. And um, I, probably like many of us, have a PhD in hiding and a PhD in silence and sloth. And yet you want me to know you. You want to know me. You want to know us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that there would be moments in the coming week or maybe even today that we would sense in a way that we cannot explain the divine ear beckoning us to speak, ready to listen. I pray, Father, for those who struggle with deep shame in their relationship with you, that like, the, like the, the prodigal son coming home, you would find that while they're practicing their I'm sorry speech, they sense you running toward them with an open embrace. Cover their shame. For those of us who just feel stupid or don't know where to start or aren't even sure if in praying that there's a God who listens, I pray that you give them just faith enough to speak and to be heard. Lord, our hearts are very disorderly. We've got rage. We've, we've got uh, pain points related to heaven and earth not yet being one again completely. And so we, we wonder, why, why didn't you heal him? We wonder, why aren't you here yet? We wonder, why is there still war going on? And so as we give voice to our lament and our pain and our joy and our longings, Lord Jesus, would we find you as we prayed earlier, mighty to save and close to those who call. Well, Jesus, as we get ready to receive communion, I pray that you pour out your spirit on us and make this bread and this juice so much more than that. But a means by which, through the Holy Spirit, we experience the presence and power of Jesus who loves us. I pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you.
May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.